The finest emotion of which we are capable, said Albert Einstein, is the mystic emotion. Well, that's a surprising thought from a physicist. I'm Rav Mike Foyer, and this is a Jewish story. Don't touch that dial. We interrupt your regularly scheduled programming for some live content. Call it Rav Mike's favorites. A few selections from my Jewish Story Live class. I invite you to join the new round of the Jewish Story, picking up August 28th, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern, 8 to 9 every week in Israel. If you want information, go to jewishstory.co, scroll down to see Access Jewish Story Live, or send me an email at robmikeforyatgmail.com. I hope to see you there. Meanwhile, enjoy What is the Zohar? Okay, as always, I want to thank the Pardes Institute for helping make this class happen. That's P-A-R-D-E-S dot org dot I-L. Okay, good morning, everybody. So we are, oh, that was such a nice response. Um, the, uh, we are in the middle of this conversation about the Zohar. Um, and, you know, if you're in the middle of a conversation about the Zohar, it's probably best to go back to the beginning because it's a confusing conversation in the best of circumstances. So that's what I want to do. The big picture today um, is I want to nail down what is the Zohar as a text, right? At least open up some of the questions around its origins. Um, I want to speak about its appearance in history, right? Like where did the first book actually sort of pop up? And because, perhaps unbeknownst to some of you, that this is actually historiosophy, there's an underlying philosophical approach that I have to history, which is being spoken out, not so subtly at times. I want to revisit in the light of the Zohar, pun intended, um, that whole historical structure in order to appreciate the real question of what is Jewish history, as opposed to just a um, conglomeration of facts. It's a small task, um, so therefore, if we happen to finish that within the first half or so of the class, then we'll begin moving forward again in history into the 14th century, just because I find there's never enough time to do things. Okay, so that's it. That's what we're going to do, um, the Zohar. So, you know, if I ask the average person, well, if I ask the average person, they'll probably say, what's the Zohar? If I ask the average religious Jew on the street, what is the Zohar? The answer they will give me is what? The major book of Kabbalah, right? Which is going to beg the question of what is Kabbalah, which we've touched on, but we will come back to these, remember these sort of two streams of mystical thought that, um, that take a definitive form in the 13th century, that being the sort of systematic, speculative approach, metaphysics, for lack of a better word, right? What's the, how do we understand the link between the infinite God and the finite universe? That's, right, theosophy, right, theology, all these wonderful words that really don't mean so much to me. But the key is that it's systematic thinking, and it's an, an attempt to understand that bridge between the finite and the infinite, don't forget, of course, according to the Ramban, that this is inherited wisdom. Right? That's, in his eyes, Kabbalah means you received it from Moshe at Sinai all the way down. Right? Integrity of authority and integrity of tradition. Right? Now, it doesn't have to be the Ramban. It could also be um, a, a sort of a more analytical approach. You could have a mystical, systematic approach that learns out from texts. But either way, on one side we have this sort of systematic approach. On the other side, we have what the Abu Lafia called the prophetic Kabbalah, right? Which doesn't reject systems, but whose primary sort of source of knowledge is revelation, 
right? Whether they think of it as divine spirit, whether they think of it as a bat kol, right, the echoed voice of God, or whether they actually think of it as prophecy, as some indeed do that language. But it's the idea that systems are a means to an end. A means to an end. Right? For instance, anybody here play an instrument? Anybody here play piano? How many hours have you spent playing scales on the piano? Right? It is certainly not an end unto itself, correct? Why do you do it? It's in order that when you want to let yourself go in the music, your hands know what to do. Right? So in the same way, the prophetic Kabbalah, the more sort of ecstatic element of the tradition, says, well, we may accept your system, but your system is there in order to get things straight so that when I prepare myself properly, I'm attaching to God and not something else. Let's remember, because the Kabbalists are also the ones that believe in magic. And so we'll maybe get to with the Rosh and the Rashba later today. So we have those two sides of the mystical tradition. Right? They had their sort of um, definitive modern forms coming out of the Girona schools, we said, in 13th century Christian Spain. Right? The Ramban, Rabbi Avraham Abu Lafia, uh, the Yosef Jekitilia, and then, of course, Rav Moshe de Leon. Right? No one had ever heard of Rav Moshe de Leon if it weren't for the fact that he is the first person who brings the Zohar to light. Right? So it's not exactly clear when. He's born in 1250, um, so let's just call it 1300 if you want a round number. Somewhere you know, in the middle of his life, he comes forward and he says that he has a copy of a manuscript which was written by Rav Shimon Bar Yochai. And that was the other answer. If I had asked the average religious Jew on the street who wrote the Zohar, they're going to tell me Rav Shimon Bar Yochai. Now let's remember a little bit of the context there. Right? Rav Shimon Bar Yochai is a Tana, meaning he's uh, one of the authors of the Mishnah. He's a student of Rabbi Akiva, right, the, the great bridge of the Oral Torah. We remember, we actually began this class all the way back there, if you recall. The beginning of the, of the first semester. And most importantly, right, he is the one who goes and hides in the cave during a time of persecution, right, and, and only comes out after how long? Well, that's the funny thing. It's both. Right? Let's just, just pause. And there's a story in the Gemara and Shabbat that says that Rabbi Shimon goes into the cave for 12 years. Right? And he's there, and you know, the, the Midrash says that, um, that he and his son would strip off their clothes and bury themselves to their necks in the sand all day to, in order to learn. And then when it was time to pray, they would kind of climb out, dress themselves and pray because they didn't want their clothes to wear out. Um, and that there was you know, a, a carob tree in a, in a spring that, that fed and took care of them. Fine. But, but in that cave, they had retreated from the world. And if you remember the conversation that precedes it, there's a conversation between Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Huda, Rabbi Huda and um, Rabbi Huda Barilai, and, um, and Rabbi Shimon. And the conversation was, what did the Romans ever do for us? Which, by the way, is evidence that Monty Python had learned the Gemara. <laughs> right? It's true. They clearly quoted the Gemara in Chavez, right? Like, what did the Romans ever do for us? And so, so um, Rabbi Yehuda, who becomes Rosh Medabrim, he becomes the first speaker, so to speak, says, well, the Romans built the roads, they built the aqueducts, they built the, you know, the, the uh, marketplaces and the bridges. You know, it's great. We live in a perfectly modern, physical world, right? Riosi said nothing, right? And for that, he was put into exile but not killed. And Rabbi Shimon said everything the Romans did, they did for themselves. He disparages the physical world. He says they set up bridges in order to charge taxes, right? They, they um, set up the marketplaces in order to put prostitutes in them. Right? It's, it's, what he's pointing out is that this whole effort of constructing the physical world is self-serving. It's not for the sake 
of the vision of the Torah that he held to be so dear. And so he's you know, condemned to death by the Romans when they get word that he didn't appreciate their efforts. Right? And he flees, and that's how he ends up in the cave. And after he comes out of the cave for 12 years, he and his son look around the world, and what do they see? People living a normal physical life, plowing, planting. And he says, what? You're abandoning eternal life for the life of this world? And he starts to zap everything with laser beams from his eyes. That's what it says in the Gemara. He doesn't use the word laser beam, but that's okay. Right? Everything's bursting into flames, and what voice comes from heaven says, what? This is, this is what you came out to do? Go back in the cave. You obviously didn't get the message. So he goes back into the cave one more time, and then the next time he comes out, he encounters, well, first there's a whole thing with his son and he, that his son is still torching things and he's healing them, but that's a different level of discussion. But the key is he sees an old man who's running with two branches of myrtle. And he asks him, he says, what's that for? He says, well, this one's for Shamor, this one's for Zachor. Right? This, uh, there is a tradition of smelling sweet herbs before Shabbat in order to enliven the soul, right? And one was for remember the Shabbat, and one was for keep the Shabbat. And, and, and Rabbi Shimon is moved by the sort of beautiful devotion displayed here. Do you see what's happened? He's reconciled his existence with the physical world. That the physical world has gone from being a, a tool that Rome uses to draw us away from God, right? They put the bridges there to make us pay taxes. They put the markets there to put prostitutes to, wow, these myrtles are an opportunity to serve God. Now, there's a lot more in the story, but because the Zohar originates with Rabbi Shimon, it's important to understand that the process that he underwent is a process of reconciling himself, not just with a, oh, well, I'm stuck in the physical world. By the way, who said that? Well, he started as a Jew. Well, Jesus, you know, it's, Jesus has got a funny relationship to the physical. Paul. Paul was the one who called the body the prison of the soul and called the idea of having children giving fruit to death. Right? And don't forget, of course, that the, the, the Third Roman War, which is the context for Rabbi Shimon's Torah, is also the point at which Christianity and Judaism begin to definitively split. Right? And so there's a, there's a deep question of how one relates to the physical world. I want you to get the context here. It's very important that the Zohar in its roots, comes out of this context that what do we do with the physical world? Right? Do you run away from it? Is it intrinsically evil? There's a pretty easy sell to be made there at the Third Roman War when the, the entire nation is being crushed and exiled, that the national vessel, meaning the, the Judea as a kingdom, is being completely dispersed. The, the temple has been destroyed at that point for 50, 60, maybe more years, depending on exactly where we lay in this equation, right? Maybe the physical world is actually not where we belong. And that the mystic needs to retreat into the cave, right? needs to leave the world. And that world-rejecting momentum is indeed what early Christianity picks up. There's a reason that, that the monastic ideal maintains its power in Christianity for another thousand years, more, 1,500. Right? And, and still, I have a friend who's a monk in Poland right now. He likes to tell me he still is in the Middle Ages. Right? Um, they, so it's still around, and it is not to be dismissed lightly, but it is not the way of the Jewish mystic. Remember, Shimon thinks it is, and he comes out, and he starts zapping things with laser beams. God says, you didn't get the message. He goes back in, and then he reconciles himself with the physical world, which is no small matter in the light of the destruction that the physical world has wrought upon the Jewish people in his generation.
And I want you to remember that because the mystic tradition is a light that comes out of darkness. The light that comes out of darkness, which has its roots in the fundamental posture of the Torah, which is uvecharte v'chaim. Never forget that, that you should choose light. But the fundamental posture of the Torah is choose life. Now you'll say to me, right, they'll say to me, but wait, there are situations in which we're required to die, right? And the answer is yes, you're required to die for the service of higher life. Let's not forget that there's life with a lowercase l, that's you and me, and there's life with an uppercase l, which is life that goes beyond just you and I. So, so I'm required to die in order to prove that there's only one God. I'm required to die in order that I not violate the, the sanctity of, of physical intimacy. I'm required that I, not, I die in, in order that I not take another person's life. Those are in service of life as capital L. And you can trace that whole theme, by the way, in all the situations which a Jew might be required to lose their life, it's always in service of life. Because the fundamental message of the Torah is that God wants life. And by the way, what's the proof for that? You don't even need the Torah. If you believe in God, what's the proof that God wants life? Existence. The one thing you can say for sure about God is that God wants life. And lots of it. In different kinds. Right? So, like, you, the Torah comes to sort of regulate and mod- modulate and, and can complexify, if that's a word, that kind of picture. Yeah, it's a word now. Um, but nevertheless, the, the fundamental assertion is, is, and, you know, one of the, the ironies is that sometimes it's hard to choose life if you don't feel the opposite weighing down on you. It's just one of the reasons that the power of mysticism is a power that comes, it's a light that comes out of darkness. So, so Rabbi Shimon, according to tradition, writes the Zohar, which is in some ways um, a record of his mystic travels with the Hebraic Kedisha, with his holy brotherhood, right? It's a group of people, some of whom actually coexisted with him, some of whom did not, um, who would wander from place to place and have these adventures, right? You know, when the Gemara says, um, Tashma, right? Come in here. Right? If the Gemara has a question, it'll say, Tashma, or come here. The, the Zohar says, Pukhaze, go out and see. Right? The, the, the Zohar is, is specifically oriented to finding God in the world, which again, is, that is the orientation of the Jewish mystic. We're not trying to get out of the world. You're not, you're not going to a hilltop somewhere and attempting to sort of like dismiss the physical. It's a deep belief, as we're going to speak out once again in the relationship between mysticism and mythology, that everything in the world specifically is a gateway for attaching yourself to God. So, according to tradition, in the Zohar, he, he records his own journeys with his holy friends, as well as his conversations with Elijah the prophet, who reveals himself to him there in that cave. And then apparently, this document goes underground and disappears. Now, that may sound problematic if it weren't for the fact, as we've spoken about already in this class, that that's the very nature of Torah, and the star, this hidden Torah. Right? When, when the Mishnah in, in, in Chagiga says that the two sort of rabbinic code words for um, the mystical tradition are Ma'aseh Breshit and Ma'aseh Merkava. Right? The work of creation and the work of the chariot, which is the first chapter in the book of Ezekiel. Right? And so the Mishnah says that you're not supposed to teach these things. I mean, Ma'aseh Breshit you can teach you know, to one student, but uh, you know, the Ma'aseh Merkava, not even to one, but you, can, you can't really teach it, but you can, say, you can teach them what's called Roshe Prakim. Well, it's not just the headlines. The whole idea here is that I can't teach this to you. But, you know, if you happen to be reading the book of Ichezkel and a good, sharp student comes to me and says, gosh, you know, Rebbe, 
I was reading the book of Yechezkel, and I think it means this. You know what I say? You should go look at the sixth chapter of Isaiah. That's it. And therefore, where does the understanding, if any, occur? What's that? With, within the student. Right? And that's another very important piece of this whole mystic tradition. On one hand, we're going to have all these texts which have systems and ways of understanding things. On the other hand, there's a deep understanding that, that real comprehension is not in the text. That's Torah Hanigleh. That's the revealed Torah. That's the halachic legal system. It's the narrative structure of the Midrash. All these things we've spoken about, which we're going to put hopefully in order momentarily, as a, a way, not only of knowing the world, but a way of being in the world. But the deep understanding, right, the intimate connection with God, be it as an experience, oh, or as a comprehension, is something that happens completely personal. Therefore, I can't give it to you, because if I give it to you, you know what you have now? Is you have me. <laughs> you don't have you. you. I can't have a relationship for you. I can say, anybody ever get advice on a relationship from someone else? There's two types of advice you get from someone else about your relationship. The type that actually has more to do with the person you're talking to than you, and the type that is actually relevant. Right? And, and I'm sure we've all given it before. It's like, well, there's only a limited degree to which I can take my relationship with my wife and offer you, Bob, some, some, some advice about yours. Right? It's, like, it's only so much. Because why? Because I'm me and you're you, and I don't really know you, much less your relationship. Nevertheless, there is a certain human interpersonal, psycho-emotional framework which we share so if I notice the fact that every time your wife starts talking, you just talk right over her, it might be some useful advice to say, have you tried listening? Right? Meaning, there, so there is a degree to which we share a certain system of relationships and compatibility, and there's a degree to which actually a relationship is, is, is between two people and no one else will ever intervene. Right? And we're going to parse out that difference in the emergence of the Zohar before too long. So... So here we have a certain degree of text. What it is, no one knows because no one's seen it. But there's a tradition that there was a certain degree of text written down, which, by the way, shouldn't be surprising because as we spoke about earlier in this class, that the Gaonim, so now we're speaking about 9th, 10th century, were largely learning the Gemara, they were largely learning the Gemara orally. I don't want to miss that. Do you appreciate what I'm saying? Is that in the, in the evidence is that in the 9th, 10th century, that the Gaonim were largely learning the Gemara as an oral text, not as a written one. In which case, the assertion that the Zohar existed as an oral text at the same time would be perfectly logical. Because it was actually the hidden, I mean the revealed text that everybody's learning in large rooms full of Jews that are all going like this, right? Um, is actually still largely oral at this point. It's not that they don't write it down. They do write it down, and mostly, though, for export. If you can't be in the academy with the Gaon, and you're somewhere in Europe or off in some far-flung town where you actually have enough money to pay somebody to write it down, so we'll write it down. But, but it's still an oral endeavor. So therefore, the idea that the hidden Torah would remain oral is in no way surprising. And don't forget that this is where the integrity of text and the difference that we have in relationship to it is so profound. What's the original text here? Well, it's all mine. But you know what it is? It's several days of me writing notes to myself. Now, it happens to be I did it in different colors. 
but you don't know which one came first and whether I switched pens on the same day or not. So what's the text there and what's the commentary? Right? This we see, you can see it in manuscripts all over the place. In the halakhic discourse, it's actually easiest to nail down. Right? The, the halakhic manuscripts are commonly have what are called haga'ot. Right? You have the Or Zeruah, classic text produced from the school of the Tosvis, who's actually a student of Rabbi Yehuda Hasid. Right? Um, you have the Or Zeruah, and then you have what's called haga'ot ha'or Zeruah. The notes on the Or Zeruah. The problem was they were both written by hand. The original haga'ot were really haga'ot. They were side marginal notes. So, but, but at what point did some scribes say, well, but wait, that is definitely explaining what this word means, which means it actually belongs, or it's a filling in of a fragment of the text. So I'll just put it into the main body of the text. What, at what point does it cease to be a comment and become the text itself? The scribe may or may not be aware of that, but the person who receives the text having written is, right, because well, this is why in the modern world, uh, manuscript, you know, comparative manuscript analysis became a very powerful tool and in, in that's at the heart and soul of the academic study of, of what's called philology, right? The study of text through time, right? So I can see how text develops. But that isn't going to happen in a hidden tradition. Not only is it not going to happen, I'll make it even worse for you. What happens if I know that this text isn't the thing itself, but it's the way to the thing? It's the way to the thing. Because what's the thing itself I'm after? God. You know, and so at a certain point, I'm reading the text and comprehending whatever I'm comprehending, and suddenly a great light fills the room, and the text falls from my hand, or I begin to write, right? And when I'm done, what do I have here? Is it the same text? What if I heard Rabbi Shimon tell me exactly what he meant when he wrote that text? You, you hear all the layers of problem here? So when the text of the Zohar as a book emerges in the 13th century, early 14th, you know, right around the edge, right, in Christian Spain in the hands of Ramos de Leon, at the heart of this mystic school, and he says, this was written by Rabbi Bishman Bar Yochai, what does he mean? Right? So we said there's a few stories around its emergence. We said, well, you know, right away, he starts telling people this. It's a hit. Within 50 years of its revelation, it's already being quoted in Italy by the Racanati, right? And we know that once the community in Spain is destroyed within a couple hundred years, it will become the backbone. It will overtake the mystics tradition of the, of the, um, the, Ash, the Hasidic Ashkenaz that we spoke about. It will overtake it within Germany, basically subsume the whole German mystic tradition within the Zohar, the, what's called the Midrash Ne'elam, which is perhaps a commentary, perhaps part of the original, right, becomes extremely popular. It's going to become the primary vessel for a very deep need that we will speak about in the Jewish story. So there is a parallel tradition, long-standing all the way back to the Second Temple period. There is a tradition of what's called pseudopigrapha, which is what, what you know, in the halakhic literature you call tola b'ilan gadol, Nobody cares what I wrote, but if I say it was written by Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, oh, well, now everyone's listening, right? I hang my words on a great tree. That's what it means, tola and gadol. And by the way, we see that explicitly referenced within the halakhic literature here and there as saying, like, yeah, I said the shach said it, but that's because I wanted people to listen. But really, I know I'm right. And we'll, but don't, don't laugh, because at a certain point, there's a question. If it's really true, without the postmodern problem, 
If I really, really believe it's true, then what difference does it make who said it? Right? Except I'll tell you what difference it makes is that, is that who am I? Ah. But if it's really, really true, because maybe I heard God himself tell me, or maybe I've just come to this conclusion through my study, and it's so important to me that the Jews know it's true, well, then of course Rabbi Shimon wouldn't have disagreed, right? I mean, on a, on a certain level, it's exactly what Rabbi Shimon said. And if I'm holding these fragments of manuscripts and oral traditions about what it is that Rabbi Shimon said, which are, of course, the origin of anything I think at this point, then, well, you know, there's a very easy and somewhat fuzzy line between what I said and what he said. So meaning, pseudopigrapha can be many things. It can be a deliberate attribution of my works to someone else in an attempt to gain popularity or authenticity, authority. It can also be a deep confusion about authorship. And when you put it into the, the sort of ecstatic mystic category, the second one needs to be considered. If it's true or not, it's, you know, it's its own question. But, but I do want to sort of like note that the question, all the way back in the Second Temple times, many of the books which do not make it into the Hebrew canon are indeed pseudepigrapha, right? The book of Enoch, right? Uh, the, the fourth book of Ezra, um, so it's probably the best, two best known. By the way, there's one that does make it into the Hebrew canon according to the biblical critics. Which one is it? The book of Daniel, right? And we started this class many moons ago with the book of Daniel. And I pointed out to you that according to the biblical critics, Daniel did not write the book, that it was a classic case of pseudepigrapha because the prophecies in it were considered so critical and so life-saving at their moment that the author attributed them to Daniel in order that they find enough acceptance to make it into the canon. Right? That's like Daniel, if you're not aware, is the spearhead, really, of biblical critical research because of the nature of its Aramaic, for reasons that lie outside of our discussion for right now. But, but, so, but my point is that pseudepigrapha can be a crass attempt at, you know, sort of like gaining a quick readership, right? Um, they can be a more, um, let's say, authentic attempt at getting the truth across and using, let's say, less than straightforward means in order to get that truth accepted. And they can also be a deep confusion about authorship. Once you open that door to the ecstatic mystic state as a source of knowledge, then who's to say that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai didn't dictate the entire Zohar to Rav Moshe de Leon when he was in some ecstatic state in the third level of heaven on the second floor? And the, not that I'm necessarily claiming that, but you have to understand that we look at the world in a very different way than a mystic of the 13th century. According to Ramban, this is either genuinely written by the Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai or it's not to be trusted. But... The Ramban is dead. We don't know what he thought about the Zohar. There is a tradition that says that it was the Ramban's son who uncovered the documents of the Zohar in Eretz Israel and was sending them back to, to, to Spain, and they somehow the ship got diverted, and it, I'm not really sure how it got in Moshe de Leon's hand. That's where the part where the story gets a little fuzzy. But, but you see why that would be important, because in the Ramban, you're absolutely correct. The Ramban's definition of Kabbalah, which is that it must have the authority of Moshe at Sinai and the integrity of unbroken tradition, that whole process I just described to you is just nothing but charlatanism. Right? So, so, so we have this question, and we said we actually have some, some source answers that, that um, Isaac of Akko, one of the students of Ramban, when he first heard rumors of the Zohar, now remember, he's in Akko. This is happening in Spain, just to appreciate the waves that this book made as soon as it appears. They're already talking about it in Akko, 
right? So he sent messengers, not messengers, he sent messages to his students back in Jonah to investigate. Right? And, the, and the story goes that um, indeed someone went to, um, well, I have it here written down, that it says that some believe that the Ramban had actually himself, sorry, sent them from Israel by ship to his son in Catalonia, but the ship had been diverted and the text ended up in the hands of Moshe de Leon. That's like one of those explanations, and you see specifically why it would have to be for the Ramban that that would happen. Because otherwise, according to that whole side of the Kabbalistic school, this is nothing but a fake. And even if it's real, it's dangerous because it's an inauthentic tradition. Right? But, um, but so we have a, the earliest record um, from the Sefer Yuchasim, which is actually itself a, a 16th century historical work, tells the story that Isaac of Akko, who was a student of the Ramban, um, he decided to investigate this question and in his investigations uncover the fact that there was a merchant of Avila who right after Moshe de Leon's death went and offered to buy the original from his wife. Remember, he claimed that he had a copy of the manuscript that he was distributing. If you have a manuscript from the second century, it's not something you just like pass around. So he made a copy. So what's the obvious thing the merchant wants to do? He wants to buy the original. Come on, he's a merchant, right? He's like, I, I want the original. And, his, and apparently, according to the story, Moshe de Leon's wife said, what are you talking about? There's no original. My husband wrote this book. And when I asked him, why would you say that why Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai wrote it, his answer was, because nobody's going to buy my book. That seems like a rather shocking testimony, right? But on further investigation, Rabbi Isaac Avako found two students of Moshe de Leon who swore to him that that was not the case and that indeed the original had come from Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, and the Kabbalists chose to believe those who swore under oath rather than some story from a merchant who was willing to spend a lot of money to get what he wanted. Right? What happens next through history is there is a mainstream story of the Zohar, and there is always a counter-culture story of the Zohar. The irony being now is that the mainstream story of the Zohar is the mystic sort of fundamentalist, and the counterculture, the underground culture of the Zohar, are the rationalists who are in more or less every generation, somebody pops up and says, well, there's a description of a water clock, which is a technology that didn't exist actually until the late Middle Ages. Like, explain that one to me, you know? Or there are the names of Tanaim who post-dated Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Or, you know, and, and once you get to Gershom Shalom in the 20th century, where the linguistic analysis of the origins of the Aramaic and, and like all kinds of you know modern sort of literary analytical tools. There will always be those who challenge. But in the end of the day, you stop the average religious Jew on the street and you ask them who wrote the Zohar, what will they say to you? Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And when you go to Meron on Lagba Omer, you will see the largest gathering of Jews on the face of the planet every single year, ecstatically dancing in celebration of the Torah of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, not Rabbi Moshe de Leon. And what I want to speak about now is a very different perspective on the question of what the Zohar is and where it comes from. Because let's not forget, is all the questions I asked were questions of origin. Right? Well, you, what do you mean what are questions of origin? If I want to know where the Zohar comes from, then I want to know where it came from? What is its origin? Who wrote it? And I'm telling you right now that that is a Greek definition of truth. That the Western intellectual construct sees truth as a reductionist 
endeavor. You know what a thing is by uncovering its origins. That is what the truth is. Right? History was true if it really happened. If I can find the person who actually crossed the Rubicon with Caesar, then I know that that event occurred. Right? That's the whole idea. If I can break down matter into its atom, then I know what matter is. That one, though, presents us with a particular problem. What is it? Not only are there smaller things in the atom, at a certain point, the reductionist endeavor breaks down between the event and the observer. You forgive me if I slide into physics for a minute, but there's, there's, there's a degree of measurement at which I cannot actually examine the world without changing it. And therefore, the primary myth, which lies at the heart of the Western definition of truth, which is objectivity, is exposed as just that, a myth. Doesn't mean it's not true, it just means that it gets fuzzy around the edges. Yes, objectively speaking, I am indeed here speaking to you, don't be nervous. And unless you ask my 10th grade civics teacher, we did put a man on the moon. Yeah, he didn't think so. Um, the, and your iPhone works. But if you try to tell me the direction and velocity of an electron, I'll tell you you're making it up because you can't do it. There is an important myth that lies at the heart of the Western definition of truth, which is objectivity that I can remove myself from the act of observation. Right? Objectivity means, here is an object, here is an observer. That truth involves my absolute disconnection from the object in order to observe it as it actually is. Right? History is a telling of it as it actually was. Well, that sounds great as long as you stay in the broad strokes. But that's why I went to the physics. At a certain point, that endeavor to measure the world in an objective sense breaks down. And I can't distinguish between event and observer. You can know the direction of an electron, or you can know its velocity, but you can't know both. Because by measuring it, you change it. And lest you think this is just a problem for Heisenberg and the physicists, I'll give you an example from criminology. Right? It's a well-established experiment that if someone walked into this room right now, pulled a gun out, fired several shots, and I fell to the ground screaming and then ran out, and then I jumped up after you got over the shock that I wasn't dead, I said, no one talk to anyone, take out a piece of paper and write down exactly what happened. It has been well-established that the variance in the event, you're all first person, what was said, how many shots were fired, what they were wearing, what color they were. All those things, what language was being spoken, the variance is absurd. Which begs yet another question. Oh, so now you're telling me if two people can't observe the same thing, then it's absurd for me to assert that truth lies at origin. Because what you've just, maybe okay, okay, we'll go Kantian for a minute. Truth does lie at origin, but we'll never know it. And you always say about that in yeshiva, lemai naf like, like, okay, fine. So there's a truth out there that none of us will ever know. 
Good, let's ignore it and actually talk about something we care about, which is the event. Last piece, what else happens, right? The classic example from anthropology. Anthropology is the study of culture, right? Why was it that in the 19th century, these foolish anthropologists thought you could take, you know, a random white British male, drop him in the middle of, I don't know, a, a tribal culture in Peru, and think that he was actually seeing what happened on a daily basis, instead of everyone walking around going, I don't know why that guy's dressed like that, but I'm trying to stay as far away from him as possible. Interesting, they don't like strangers, you know? You know like, this is called the participant observer problem. That you, you cannot actually observe something without participating in it. Right? Objectivity is a very important myth. Yes, your iPhone works. Yes, we went to the moon. Mr. Silak aside. Right? Yes, yes, yes. But careful. That's a precious myth. Remember, we have to talk about myth. And I told you guys we need to understand that. So there is another potential definition of truth. Not definition, sorry. There's another potential frame for examining the truth. Is that truth, to some degree, does lie at origin. I don't want to like, completely dismiss the Western canon all in one fell swoop, and like I said, we've got a lot of technological proof. But notice, by the way, in the end of the day, it's the technological proof that people point to. In the postmodern world, the philosophical proofs have broken down. But, but, but the trains still run on time. Well, you know. And, and if anybody been following the whole saga of artificial intelligence? Because it's the final blow. Because artificial intelligence has actually come to the point where you know, machines will now do things that we know what they do, we don't understand why. You understand what that's done now? Now even the technology is not really a good proof of the reductionist definition of truth because I, I can't, I, we know for sure it worked. When I said, Alexa, please open my garage door. The fact that she said back to me, but it's not snowing, you know, I, I don't really know why you said that, but the truth is that's a good point and I don't want you to open the garage door at this point. You know, you get my point? There, there's, a, there's a point at which technology has begun to overtake our comprehension of the mechanism which lies behind it which just reopens this door of where does the truth lie. Now you're thinking, what does this have to do with the Zohar? I'll tell you. Underlying this entire historical endeavor is a structure called Pardes. We've, we've visited it many times, right? Its origins in Jewish tradition are as a framework for the analysis of text. Well, that's not, so, that's not a horse, it's sewed. Um, Right? That the shot is the surface meaning of text is where we make contact. Right? I'm just gonna run through it. Right? That remez, right, literally means a hint, but it's it's meaning in context. Right? The context in text generally being the Hebrew Bible. Right? This is why, right, subtext, intertextuality, the parallels in between the book of Isaiah and the book of Devarim, or the fact that Nobody can figure out why Samuel the prophet is so upset that the people ask for a king, except if you look at the context, it's because they just said what to him? You're old and your kids are no good. Whatever they ask him for is going to be a no-starter from that point forward, right? So I mean, there is a way in which comprehension happens in context. It's not just abstract grammar or syntax. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the drash is meaning in total context. We're going to call this local. Meeting in total context, this is where it starts to get fishy. You know, let's just stay traditional. That the midrash, as a rabbinic endeavor, is a seeking of meaning in the whole world. Therefore, the context is the reader. Right? When Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai gives a midrash, he gives a drashic explanation of a pasuk, he knows what it means, 
in its grammatical, well, perhaps not grammatical, it's not really the way they thought then, but certainly its syntactic and linguistic origins. He also understands the entire Torah and Tanakh, for sure had it memorized, which is a rather important piece to always remember who we're dealing with here, right? They have the full map in their minds. And anybody has ever worked with a map, it's a fundamentally different way of knowing the world when you have the map in your mind. Can you picture where you are right now? Can you picture yourself in the map of the city of Jerusalem? Can you picture yourself in the map of, of, the, of the land of Israel? How about around the edge of the Mediterranean? How about on the planet? Solar system, anybody? Where are we in the galaxy right now? Because you, you ask a person where they are, and most of them think very locally. Your perspective shifts radically when you can locate yourself within ever larger scales of reference. Right? So, so the sages had a mastery. Watch that. It's behind me. Um, a, had a mastery of the entire frame of reference. And that's why things look different to them than they do to us when they read them. It's not just a playing with words. It's what happens when you take something out of local context and you put it in the fullness of its context. Last but certainly not least is sod. The secret, and this is meaning understood and not communicated. Or experienced, understood, experienced. You know, what do I mean by that? Well, a secret is something you don't tell someone else. And, and um, that's why, if you really want the intimacy of the mystic experience, it's not something I can tell you about. Right? Am I going to make you fall in love by explaining to you what it is? <coughs> not only is the answer no, you know what I might do? Completely destroy your experience, right? Like, tell me how you feel about her. Oh, no. Like, that's why there's a certain intimacy of experience that we associate with love. Not necessarily something you want to share. Sometimes there's moments you want to share the whole world. But there's an intimacy of experience with the text. There's an intimacy experience, by the way, with the voice that lies behind the text. And by the by, whatever your theology is, whatever you believe to be the origin of our sacred texts, whether it's God, Moshe, or a committee, right? there's still a voice behind the text, which is a very important element to remember. That, 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 that this process of learning is not exclusively theological. It does not depend upon you swallowing the narrative. Although, by the way, I would argue that it's almost inaccessible without entering into that narrative. And this brings us to a second definition of truth. Because where does the truth lie in this text? And well, in all of them, in each level, emerges from the next. Which means on some level, the truth is not reductionist. Right? That's the grammarians, the pashtanim. You want to know what the verse means? Well, tell me what its grammar is. And I pointed out to you that in one level, the grammarians are the spearhead of heresy into the text. Well, because if there is a grammatical rule that defines what that text says, that means God is subservient to grammar. That revelation had to be so. And that that whole rabbinic endeavor, Rabbi Akiva, who says that, that, that every letter, not just every letter, every crown on every letter, is communicating something to you, is not going to allow God's hands to be bound by grammar. It's not doesn't even believe in grammar. He's just pointing out to you. Grammar, okay. Like, you understand the grammar. But you know what? Meaning will always trump etymology in the mind of a traditionalist. If I understand what a text means, 
then I will, I, will, I will bend the rules of grammar to the point of breaking in order to explain to you. Why? Because that's, that's where you make contact with the text. But it's not a reductionist effort. So you have to be able to read it. My wonderful students who sometimes will come to me with these amazing insights about what the text says, and I'll have to say to them, okay, but that doesn't mean that. Like that word there, you're reading it as if it had an I in it, not an olive. Okay, that's the learning process. As long as we're all humble, it's like, great. It doesn't mean the insight was wrong. It just means it doesn't emerge out of the text. So once I get the grammar straight, then I actually know the whole map. And then suddenly it looks very different because if I can hear Isaiah talking to Dvarim and vice versa, so, so there's a different type of meaning which emerges for me. And then suddenly in the discourse in the Beit Midrash, I encounter other souls who also have that map. But the truth is no two people are alike, correct? Which means that the Torah reveals itself to every individual at every, at every generation. And frankly, I'm not the same person today as I was yesterday, which is why I always reserve the right to contradict myself. Right? It's important. Right? It's important. Don't, don't hang yourself up on what you believed yesterday. I'm not telling you just chuck your beliefs every morning, but don't assume that just because it was true to you yesterday that today it must be so. Right? You can't ask questions on everything, but there are certain things that you need to. And so, therefore, this endeavor of, of the larger context births another layer of truth and meaning, which I know I'm using interchangeably. Right? Truth and meaning into you. And then finally, at a certain point, I'm there late at night, and one by one, all the other people in the Beit Midrash go home. But I just, I just won't give it up. This verse, it's bothering me. It's bothering me. It's bothering me. I've seen it a hundred times. I've seen that a thousand times. I looked at it in context. I looked at it out of context. I talked to my Rebbe. I talked to my Chavruta. And then, at two in the morning, on the thousand and one time, suddenly it just makes sense. And I hear exactly what it's saying to me. And I fall asleep with my face in the book. My Chavruta comes in from morning, wakes me up. What are you still doing here? And I say, you won't believe what just happened. He says, what? And I realize, I can't tell you. Not that I'm not allowed. I can't. Because the reason I was unable to reach this intimacy of meaning in the midst of the discourse is because language belongs to this level. There must be, even though this is total context, there still has to be some shared language. Go ahead and have a reasonable debate with someone who's speaking in Swahili. You probably not, I mean, unless one of you speaks Swahili. Right? I usually choose that one because it's a rare language. Right? Um, the, like, meaning you're not going to get very far in shared meaning. There has to be some basis for communication, but at the same time, language is never neutral. Language will take your amorphous, pure inner experience and kill it in order to make it communicable. One second, I just want to get the whole structure out. So, so there is a level of meaning, of truth, of intimacy, which is beyond sharing. And this, of course, is where the mystic resides. Because the goal of the mystic is divine intimacy. What we call in Hebrew, dvekut. A cleaving to the divine. That can be through intellectual comprehension. It can be a grasping of something beyond which the mind can really grasp, or it can also be an intimacy of experience, an ecstatic state. You know what else it can be, and we're going to get to this soon, is it can be living a mythic existence. That the belief that when I wrap my tefillin, I'm not just doing an act in the physical world as you know it, that I'm changing the universe 
that I'm a vehicle for God's will in the here and now. And here's where we're going to see why the mystics, remember Rabbi Shimon? When he, when he went and hid away in the cave and he tried to destroy the world when he came out, God said, you missed it. When he sees the old man with the two myrtles, ah, that's, that's the depth of Jewish mysticism. Because now your actions, which are even more surface-oriented than the text itself, the text can talk about you will bind them as a sign upon your arm. And that's pshat. And we can, we can wonder what that is. But you know what super pshat is? Tefillin. Right? Because they're like real. They're there on your arm and your head. That's it. We could argue, were they right, were they wrong? But you know, that's irrelevant because that's like they're, this is it. The question is, does that tefillin express for you that moment of divine intimacy? Now, why am I doing this? Because my contention is that these also represent layers of consciousness which have been birthed into Am Yisrael through time. That, that this layer is from creation all the way through to the entry of the land. That's Joshua and the conquest. This is the truly mythic era of Am Yisrael. Whether it happened or not in the Western sense, in my opinion, is irrelevant. If you want to understand the rest of the structure, you should know that that's what it's built on. Another way to say that is, up until relatively recently, the Jews all believed it was so. And whatever they brought into the world was built on that belief. So the Western question of, did Joshua really cross the Jordan River, is the equivalent of asking, what does Tuesday smell like? It's a sentence. You're just not going to get any intelligible answer out of it. The next period is when we begin to put a toe into the Western notion of history. It's the first temple period. Right? And it's not for naught that this is the period of the creation of that local context. Even the most extreme biblical critic will tell you that the books of the, of the whole books of the Tanakh exist here, except for like the, their, their finishing happens right at the edge, because this is the return to Zion after the destruction. You understand how this works? This is the creation of the context. This is when the Hebrew Bible is written. According to the traditionalists, the five books of Moses are here, and the rest of the Bible is here. According to the biblical critics, the whole Tanakh is here with a little bit of overlap into here. That's like machlok of l'shem shemaim, in my opinion. Depends, actually, on why you're arguing, but, but it could be. Jewish history, as we know it, because history is, of course, a Greek endeavor, begins with the encounter with the Greeks, which lies here. After the return to Zion, a couple of years, hundred years later, the great crisis of Jewish history happens. You know it as Hanukkah. But it's much bigger than that. And we can't go back there now, because we've had the discussion. But I encourage you to just ask the very simple question of all the holidays that commemorate all the victories that we had during that time. Why is that Hanukkah is the one that really gets... Oh, Hanukkah and one other one. Oh, Purim. Which is the, actually the keystone of understanding not only the Jewish calendar, but also the Tanakh. Purim is the jewel in the crown of the entire construct that you live in, if you're a Jew. So those exist right here at this boundary, because of course there are no hard and fast divisions. But now, I'll tell you this, that in my humble opinion, 
The break between Drash and Sod happens with the destruction and expulsion from Spain. The, of, the, of the Jewish world in Spain. The expulsion from Spain. You know, in 1492, what happened? What happened in 1492? Columbus sailed the ocean blue. That's what they taught me in school, right? Um, it took me a long time to realize that that wasn't the only thing that happened then. <laughs> but as soon as you can have one date, 1492 is when Columbus sailed the ocean blue. 1492, which means, by the way, that we now have one world. Just don't undervalue that. Right? 1492, of course, is also the expulsion of the Jews from Spain. 1492 is also, well, either the reconquest of Europe from the Muslims or the loss of Al-Andalus, the crown jewel in the Islamic empire. It depends on who you ask. As soon as you can have four different versions of, of one story, you know you've entered a new era. What do we call that today? The postmodern era. This is the narrative problem. It's a recognition that one event can legitimately have multiple interpretations. Like right, you said, like, like as soon as we have this problem that everybody walks in, it's like no two people can ever have the same experience. And you have now multiple cultures. When I was in high school, 1492 was a really important date. It was great. Everybody celebrated it. You know what they do in my high school now? Protest. Columbus Day is not a happy day in America anymore. Well, because that's, that's a shift in the narrative. Right? This is the hallmark of a world which will take quite some time. But you know the Jews have always been on the cutting edge, right? It will take quite some time for the world to catch up to the fact that all those precious myths upon which it rested are actually just that. But you know what? The Zohar is the precursor to this whole consciousness. The Zohar emerges at this point, and I keep using that language deliberately, because frankly, if you ask me who wrote the Zohar, you know what my answer to you is? I don't know, and nor do I care. Because it's a reductionist question. If there, if there are important elements to it. You know, by the way, the place where it's always very important to be careful is that when it's a discourse of power, when you're claiming authority because the Zohar was written in the second century, and if I can tell you that this second century text is authoritative and dictate your behavior, then I'll tell you we have a real discussion on our hands. If you're asking me when was it written because if it was written in the second century, then it's really relevant. And if it was written in the 13th century, it's not relevant. I'll tell you, who are you to tell me what's relevant or not? There are tens of thousands of Jews dancing around Rebbe Shimon's grave every year. You understand that relevance and authority, of course, don't have a clear distinction. Right? But, but nevertheless, the Tsar is born into the world at the same time in which this level of consciousness begins to be not only available, but critical. Critical for the Jewish people. And before I go on and explain to you why it's critical, I'm going to pause here to make sure that people understand that the, this is a different structure of truth. It's truth as emergent as opposed to reductionist. The other way to say that is that Truth is a holistic endeavor. What's the word for truth in Hebrew? We've said it many times, right? Aleph, Mem, Taf. That's the first, middle, and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Kot Moshel Kodesh Baruch Emet, we say, right? God's seal is truth. You know the other way of saying that is you don't know what the story's about until it's over. Well, you think you know what it's about. If you ask the Christians of the 13th century, whether it was God was, was them or with the Jews, what are they going to say? them, right? They're not so sure right now. 
No, they're not. They're not so sure. There are certain plenty, certain plenty that are sure, but, but the entire shift of the evangelical world, even for its own eschatological purposes, has had to rework, not to mention Vatican II and the Catholic Church, meaning Christianity has had to rework its theology because of our change in status from being a dispersed people to having a nation state. That's one of the great examples of just pointing out, you don't know what the story's about until it's over. By the way, that knife cuts both directions, <laughs> unless you think that we're sitting pretty. You don't know what this story's about until it's over either. Right? And that's one of the challenges, which is why the reductionist argument for truth is always very comforting. One of the reasons people like to have origin myths, right? This third, this third, excuse me, third commonwealth in which we live will never fall. Why? Because I'll show you in the book of Daniel how it says this, and I'll show you. That's very comforting, I'm sure. But who says that those verses are actually about the world in which you live right now? You could be wrong. You don't know. You have to act on the basis of what you believe and what you understand, and, but you, you don't know. And so the Zohar represents a truth emerging. The questions of its origin are, in my eyes, not the most important question. And I think I've set the stage to some degree, and we'll keep doing it, as to why it would emerge now. And don't forget, we did speak about the social-cultural darkness that had begun in Spain. It really begins at the turn of the, sorry, turn of the 14th century, when the Reconquista runs out of energy and the, and the oppression of the Jews begins. Don't forget the Ramban and the disputation of Barcelona. Don't forget Nicholas Donnan and the burning of the Talmud at Paris. And much worse things are on the way until the destruction. So this is a little look at the picture of where the, uh, the Zohar comes from. What color is this page? Says who? Right? Meaning, that's your experience of it. We might even be able to measure the wavelength of light being reflected from it, but even that is going to be dependent on our tools of measurement. Right? And so the extremist position in postmodernism says that there is no objective color. There's only subjective experience. There's no difference on that, on that level, and the postmodernists will roll their eyes at facts too. Right? But, but my point is, is that there is, there is a midpoint. First of all, there's, don't forget Kant. I mean, you could say that the truth is out there and you can't know it. But I said, like I said, like, what do I care if the truth is out there and I can't know it? Um, but, but the Torah wants to dance at both weddings. The Torah, it's a fascinating thing. If you maybe never have thought about this, it's very important to remember that the Torah asserts absolute truth knowingly to subjective people. Right? Remember, that was, we go back to our discussion about the difference between philosophy and Revelation, I pointed out to you that, that Revelation is always parochial, meaning if you believe in Revelation, it means that not only was God at Sinai, but so was Moshe, and so were the people, which means that real people who woke up in the morning, went to the bathroom, washed their hands, had something to eat, had a fight with their kids, and then said, oh gosh, we're supposed to be there for the Revelation today, went out, heard what they heard, right? Absolute truth being absorbed by subjective creatures. You know, I always think that the most astounding thing about the whole story of Revelation is just imagine the people's reaction when Moshe came down the mountain and they said, well, what'd you get? And he said, here, look. And they read what they did that morning. That's what it says, right? The people got up in the morning and came to the mountain. Just the profundity of that. Here's the revelation, what you did this morning. Forever, forever this will be the source of revelation. Now, you can, it can slide right into the denial of truth. 
But remember our discussion with the philosophers? We really care about your, whether you're denying the existence of absolute truth as an abstract principle. Now, what do we care about? Your behavior. Your behavior. Well, it's not purely utilitarian, because remember, we have a belief that your behavior will build a society that will actually get you to what I would call a better approximation of the truth. Because there's one thing that mutes that subjectivity. Because the reality is, when I said, what color is this, everybody said the same thing. You know what that's called? Intersubjectivity. That the, that, that the shared experience mutes the subjectivity of experience. Which is one of the reasons that the Jewish people are a people. We are meant to have a collective experience. You know where that exists? Here. We, we create a language and shared systems of thought which bind together our subjective individual experiences into an intergenerational attempt to embody an ever more clear expression of truth. To borrow a phrase, the truth is out there. Uh, first of all, um, the fact that this is a purely Jewish endeavor um, is unquestionable. Right? But always remember that, that the whole path of Am Yisrael is a particularist, inclusive one. Right? That, that we pur purport to be the Jewish people and nothing else, and we're in service of all creation. But it's our particularism that allows us to do it. As opposed to the other two Western religions, Islam and Christianity, for whom the universalist test is the sort of the litmus test, what we believe is like we just be the Jews and do our Jew thing, the whole world will come together. How does that work? I don't know. We always get in every generation some philosopher or theologian will try to explain to you how the universal and the in particular work out. My personal inclination is I'm a particularist. So, like, I don't really need to explain that, but I'm a happy particularist. I also don't need to, like, have other people be my particular thing, right, as opposed to the angry particularist. There's a lot of them out there. Um, some of you may be voting for them. Um, the, the, uh, so, so there's also, by the way, something very interesting in the cross-cultural. I mean, there's, a, there's a phenomenon which is called conversion evolution. Some people familiar with the, this idea? Conversion evolution is why bats and birds both have wings. Right? Remember that bats are mammalian. Birds, actually, the origins are in the reptiles, right? So, so from, a, from a genotype, from the genetic base, they shouldn't have, both have wings. They don't, have, they don't share, they share very little. They were substantive genetic, but way back in their roots. Why do they both have wings? Environmental formation. They're both solving the same problem. That if you jump off something from a high place, you don't have wings, you're going to splat. And it's a distinct disadvantage in reproduction. So therefore, the ones who, who I don't know, have, I don't know, like, flappy armpits in the beginning or whatever it was, you got a slight advantage, in, uh, depending on what you believe about evolution. But, but my point is, is that, notice, it's the environment of formation that drives them toward a similar solution to the same problem. So in my experience in world culture is that it's often the same. Is that, is that, is that, and because the Jews have had a unique experience in world culture, the way in which we solve our problems will often look like the way the Christians did it, the way the Muslims did it, the way you know, the Americans do it. Why? Because we share an environment of formation. But the difference is, is that we are still trying to hold together as one people. Trying. Please, people. Put some effort in. Um, and, and one of the unique opportunities of, of the return to a land is we could bring all this great wisdom together and begin to try to work out the other way of saying this. We connect to every culture in the world. We share experience, we share ways of looking at things, and, and um, it used to be, at a certain point in Jewish history, everything had to be the Jews. 
right? The Christians must have gotten it from us. You know, the Muslims must have gotten it from us. At this point, most Jews, if not all, uh, are over that. And like, let's just talk about, does this work actually? And like, are we fulfilling our mission? So that's one piece. The other piece here, but don't forget that each of these layers changes what came before it as it comes out. If you only ever read the Chumash, you would think you understood it. As soon as you read the rest of the Hebrew Bible and you see how the prophets related to the Chumash, that causes you to go back and look and say, hmm, maybe I actually didn't even linguistically even, because the Hebrew language changes over time. Maybe I didn't we use later usages of the word to help us understand Pshat. So each level not only enhances but changes, as you noted, what we understand. That you are absolutely correct. That is just life. And there and, and whether there's a teleology here or not. You guys understand what I mean by teleology? Was this inevitable? Like, here, God said to Moshe, here, take this, and I know exactly how it's going to play out, is the biggest question in Jewish theology, right? Rabbi Akiva said, right? Everything's known, but your freedom is given to you. Are you going to solve that problem for me? This is one of the fundamental problems of any believer. If you believe that there is a divine will, how you reconcile sorry, your will with that will is one of the fundamental problems. By the way, the mystic is deeply in that problem. Because you know what the mystic really discovers here? You know what they really look deep inside in the intimacy of your understanding? You know what you find? God. Which means God doesn't lie outside. God doesn't lie in the text. doesn't lie in heaven, on top of Sinai, or I don't know, somewhere else. God lies within. That's beautiful, but it's really problematic <laughs> because it means like, well, well, where do I lie? How do I reconcile my will with God's will? Which is why the mystic, of course, in the Jewish tradition will also be obsessed with specificity of action. Right? That the goal of the mystic is that all action should be done with conscious intention in reflection of the divine will, which is an unfolding. We're not there yet. So somehow, through my free exercise of will, even if that exercise of will is in adhering to what I perceive to be God's will, I become a vehicle for the unfolding of the divine will. Oh, you'll say to me, well, if God could do that, then what does God need me for? I mean, all we're doing is messing everything up, right? Always remember that, in fact, everything which is perfect and godly in you and I is irrelevant to God. It's only that which is broken, messy, and unformed that you have to offer. Because everything else God could have had without you. That is the human condition. It is our flaw, imperfection, raw selves that we have to offer. That's the whole story of Purim. You ever wonder why Mordecai's only line in the Purim story is the worst motivational speech ever? Right? He, Esther says, listen, everybody knows if you go to the king... It's like certain death. I haven't been for 30 days. Mordecai says, number one, everything's going to be fine without you. Right? Right? Everything's going to be fine without you. Number two, you're in real danger. You and your father's house, could be a problem. Number three, who knows? Could be that's why you're queen. Not sure. Good luck. Who knows? Why does he say that to her? I mean, as a reader, you want him to say what? And clearly, this is why you have become queen. Except, you know what that does? It makes her irrelevant. As soon as he says to her, 
Yeah, as soon as he says to her, and clearly this is the reason, then she could have been anybody. And therefore she's nobody. But when he says, who knows, what does she do? Esther's loveshet malchut. She takes charge of her life. And what if she doesn't say, okay, great, now I'm going to succeed. She says, kashe avadati avadati. She says, okay, if I'm going to go, I'm going to go, but I'm going to go out fighting. I'm going to take agency. It's absurd. Like, who cares? One human being in the universe, at least tell me it's inevitable. and That's why you became queen. Mordechai says, no. That's not, that's not what life is about. That is the message. Remember when I told you that the Purim story is the keystone of the whole Hebrew Bible? That is the message. There are no guarantees. But if you want to live a meaningful life, you can choose to. And you know what? It doesn't always work out. That's it. Lech tilmat. That's all you get. And so the Zohar reintroduces a mythic topography into Jewish life at a critical moment. Things are in crisis. Again, the crisis is not happening yet because, you know, it's a fool that waits till the crisis is happening to reach, right? If, you, if, you're, if the lifeboat starts to break up beneath you and you say, Mom, did we bring the life jackets? Bad move, right? And, and that's why the Gemara says God always brings the cure before the disease. Right? So the Zohar appears and it, a very small group of mystics are really entranced because it's a really good story and it puts humanity at the center of creation. Right, as opposed to the philosophers who see humanity as this sort of like fragment of creation and that the only way to achieve immortality is through the extension of your active intellect, meaning you know, a very elite group of conscious beings will make it and the rest of us will just die or, I don't know, have a meaningless existence. The Zohar says, no, you know what? Every Jew, through their actions, actually completes creation. That You are the keystone. You're not some fragment. The keystone, and it's not about your intellect, even though that's important. The Zohar is hardly anti-intellectual. But what it's about is your actions. That it's your actions that will actually allow God's essence to flow through all of the layers of creation. So now, we have the two necessary ingredients for survival down through time. Number one, we have the story. And that's what mythology is. But mythology, perhaps the best way to really explain mythology is, is in contrast to allegory. Star Wars is great mythology. You know why? If you haven't seen Star Wars, go home, people, and watch the first, which is actually episode four, but I don't confuse you. Right? Um, the, meaning, Star Wars is not about, well, Luke is actually in the United States, and, and Darth Vader is the Soviet Union. Right? Well, actually, Darth Vader is Czechoslovakia, and the Empire, the Empire is the Soviet Union. No, it doesn't work. That's allegory, because that would mean that there is a one-to-one relationship What's called homology, one-to-one relationship, in which case that as soon as the Soviet Empire had fallen, Star Wars becomes completely irrelevant and uninteresting. Right? That's, that's allegory. You could strip away the external and you get the essence because there's a one-to-one relationship. No, Star Wars is mythology. Right? The purpose of good is not to destroy evil, but to convert it to good. Because inside, even the darkest of places, exists not only light, but the origin of light. Luke, you're my father. Or I'm your father, sorry. Right? You understand? And that is a message which is eternal. And because it's eternal, it is always 
relevant. Now, it's true that if I showed my kids, with the exception of my son who actually loves that movie, that story, they find it completely uninteresting because its context, its clothing, so to speak, is a period piece and the special effects aren't even that good, right? But the message, if repackaged, is the same message. That's the essence of mythology. Mythology is always being reworked. It's the same stories. Good and evil. The power of life over death. Right? Love transcends. You can fill in. There aren't so many fundamental myths, by the way, of, of human experience. There are many stories, but there aren't so many fundamental myths. And the, the nature of myth is such that it is not only can be, but must be reworked. That's, that's how it survives through time. Because if it's left as allegory, if Lucas in the United States and Darth Vader is Czechoslovakia, so then in one generation, it's irrelevant. But if it has that mythic topography of a struggle between good and evil, life overcoming death, right, the power of love, and, you know, so then whatever, however you repackage it, it's the same story. Right? And that is the Tsar. The Tsar is a mythic story about a passionate love between creator and creation and about the power and, and meaning of the individual's action to effectualize, to actualize that relationship. I mean, it's about a lot more than that. But, but you see then why that story is eternal. And when I link it to that power of action, right? how do I, how do I show my love for God? He wrapped and then I can teach you all kinds of, of systematic meaning about wrapping to fill in. And you know what that does? That 500 times you do it, suddenly it's a fundamentally different experience. And you feel it as an act of intimacy. Right? The power of that combination is what mysticism is. Because mythology is the, is the story. It's the topography on which the mystic walks. Right? Mysticism is the commitment to cleave to a world which is not yet. To the, to the divine world which is not yet fully exposed, and through your actions to expose it. Right? People who love without bounds, who give without consideration, who believe without logic, are all mystics, whether they think of themselves or that way or not. Right? Why? Because they are, they are through their actions, cleaving to a world which is not yet. Why do you help the little old lady across the street? Not just because it's the right thing, because you want to live in a world in which people help each other. And you don't want that as an abstract philosophical notion. You want it as a real embodied notion. And you know how you do that? By doing it. Because you believe there's like a better world. If you just clear away this muck of the selfishness and the fear and the anger and the pain, if you just clear away that muck there's that, it's waiting, that world's waiting to reveal itself. So the mystic walks on the topography of mythology. And not only that, but they shape that story. I'm telling a story about a world which is not yet. Right? And of course, Jewish mysticism, and by the way, both Christian and Islamic mysticism, because they, they adopted this from us, believe, of course, also in the messianic redemption. That it's not all in our hands that there's a tipping point, right? that, that we have to push through this veil of history to the point in which that world will then reveal itself as it has before. Right? These religions, we often talk about 
you read out the Dorot, right? The descent of generations. You guys are familiar with this idea? That the further we get from Sinai, the, the, the worse things are, the, the more the light has been shaded by the generations, etc. But it's often forgotten. The further you get from Sinai, is the closer you get to the Messiah. Right? It, it works both ways. Right? So the mystic is the one who says, ah, the darker it's getting. Remember I told you that, that, that mystic, the mythic light is the one that comes out of darkness. The darker it's getting, the greater the light grows. Because the potential of your actions, you will hear, I know, I know rabbis today who will tell you this, and I think it's really true. I think about it all the time with my students. People say to me, you know, my students who come from very diverse backgrounds and have, let's say, wildly divergent views on what the Torah is and what it means and what to do with it in the world, I'm willing to bet that we have similar spread of ideas here in this room. But one of the things I always tell my more um, sort of square, observant friends when they say to me, like, why? Why would you spend your time teaching people like that? I say to them, listen, you grew up from, your whole community told you what to do, and you've basically always done what you were supposed to, which is great. I'm not disparaging it. But you realize the value of one Mishnah learned, one conscious action done by someone who had to fight through the entire context of their education and, and, and upbringing to say, I actually want to know something about the Torah. To get all the way to Jerusalem and to sit for hours a day just to get the language skills enough to read the Mishnah? I don't care if you agree with it. That's already like a very late stage. The effort, people, it's an astounding light. So I would argue that this notion this mythic notion that that matters, that your actions matter because there's some story, you're not satisfied with the way the world is now, right? And there's some story that your actions will be able to push the world forward, defeat evil, bring the light, however you think of it, in current phase of Jewish existence, has its origins in the Zohar. And that is why when you stop the average religious Jew on the street, they will tell you it was written by Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochan. Because in my opinion, whether he put those words down on the paper or not, it is certainly his voice that speaks to him. Because he is the essence of the voice which refuses to bow to the darkness or to the illusion that the world is simply a source of oppression and covering over God's will. Remember, he started there. What did the Romans ever do for us? But it's not where he ends up. Right? It's a restorative vision in the end. That the world really matters because it's the only place you're going to meet God. Right? It's the only place you're going to meet God. Maybe after 120. But the reality is, I don't know, and neither do you. So this is a touch of the context for the emergence of the Zohar. And in history, it places us dancing around the turning point between a, a, a new type of consciousness which is going to come. Now, by the by, um, just as a plug for the Omer program, we're going to jump just so you understand what's happening in the class, is that, that um, my guess is we're going to get to early modernity. We're making good progress as opposed to other times. My guess is we'll get to early modernity. I'm thinking about 16th century, although we're probably not going to speak about Spain. As I said, we've, been, we've had like one little toe in Spain, and I'll keep referring back to it, but our story is the story of Ashkenaz this year. Right? During the Omer, we're going to actually talk about modernity. I think Alex called it from Moses Mendelssohn to Moses Hess, which might have been my idea. But, meaning, so, but there, if you're interested, we will, we will have to spend some time speaking about what, it, what changes. What's the difference in consciousness which becomes available in all the blessings and challenges right, um, of, of the Jewish encounter with modernity? And, and what does it offer 
for the unfolding of this story. So we've got a few minutes left. I'm going to leave it open for questions or comments, but, but um, I don't think we're going to start a new topic at this point. So, great question. The term pardes first emerges, yes, you guessed it, in the Zohar. So, so the question is, when does it, when, I mean, if it, according to the traditionalists, it's there in the authors of the Mishnah, according to the sort of critical view, which is more of what I'm presenting here, it emerges in the 13th century in Spain in the context of, of a lot of Christian exegesis. Right? But but the last piece here is, is remember there's two different ways of looking at this question. There's a reading in and there's a reading out. You understand that this is one of the, the big challenges of what's called literary criticism today. Was the sod always there in the text? And what I'm doing is my soul at this point in history, or the collective soul of the Girona school, has reached that point in history where we're able to actually see it so to speak, we're able to hear it, we can receive it. It's always been there, at least in potentia, with the questions of teleology aside, right? And, and now it's emerging, or no, they're, from their context, they've been exposed to the Christian mystics and how they read texts, and they're reading it in, right? That's the literary critical, right? This is what's called the death of the author today, if you're familiar with like, postmodern literary theories, right? The, the author, authorial intent, the author can't say, that's what I meant to say X, Y, Z, because it's like, well, you didn't mean anything. You're just the product of your environment like everybody else. The text exists. So, so that's the, the short answer. It really appears first in the Zohar. And, and I think that, that the idea that a person should be 40 and married and a master of um, the revealed Torah and have children, I think there's two reasons. First of all, that the depth of life experience, in the same way that when someone gets up to pray before the community on, on the high holidays, we say the same things. They should have children, they should be a certain age, et cetera. Why? Because, as you guys know, you really don't know the world in the same way. Right? Until you've worried about your adult children, you know, it's a different world. I'm not saying that, not to disparage anybody who hasn't done that, but it is a different world once you've held that life experience, and therefore what you bring to the passion of prayer is different. So in the same way, what you're reading is going to look different. Also, frankly, a lot of people read this stuff and it pushes them write out the normative box and they stop keeping the commandments. The word pardes, as a, associated with the mystic tradition, has its origins in that Brita of the story of Rabbi Akiva, uh, Alicia Ben Abuya, Acher, right, and Ben Azai and, and Ben Zoma. But remember that the word pardes means pardes there, it means an orchard, right, which of course is not even a Hebrew word, by the by. So it's a loner word. From, it's a loan, it's not a Hebrew word. Pardes is not a Hebrew word. I think it's Persian, yeah. All right, so light, light topic matter. And uh, we'll pick up with the flow of history next week. If you like that live sound, I encourage you to join me for Jewish Story Live. Picking up once again, August 28th. It'll be every Sunday night, 1 to 2 Eastern Standard, 8 to 9 in Israel. We're going to pick up with the book of Daniel and understand the underpinnings of half of human society. You can find the details, jewishstory.co. Scroll down until you see Access Jewish Story Live. Or you can look up in the upper right-hand corner because Season 6 is coming. And if you want to be a patron, click on that button to give a little bit of per-podcast support. Send me an email for details of both of the above, robmikeboyer.gmail.com. Either way, I hope to see you there. I'm Rob Mike Boyer, and this is The Jewish Story.